asking the question betrays your ignorance of the subject matter. It's like, you know, you adopt this like childlike innocence. It's like, okay, what's the supply of dollars? It's like, no, you're not allowed to ask that. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Inflated Expectations with me, your host, Alison Reichel, where we bridge the gap between crypto and economics. Today, I'm joined by another very special guest, partner at Castle Island Ventures, co-founder of Coinmetrics, host of On The Brink podcast, and a very avid Twitter user and friend of mine, Nick Carter. Hey everyone, quick BlockWorks-related announcement. So from August 11th to August 13th of this year, BlockWorks is hosting its Bretton Woods The Realignment event at the historic Bretton Woods location in New Hampshire. It's going to be a macro-focused event filled with the best macroeconomists, investors, and macroanalysts talking about the future of finance. So if you want to attend and get your tickets at a discounted price, click the link in the description or use the code INFLATED at checkout. Hope to see you there. Hello, Nick. Good morning. Thank you for coming on. Hi, Allison. Hello. How are you doing? Thank you for... Yeah, good. Thank you for making me your second guest ever. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for for joining. You know, there's no second best, but there is a second guest. So (laughs) we'll see how this goes. I guess for a little bit of background on you, just where, I don't know. (laughs) I'm sure everybody knows you already, but. That's true, yes. Maybe maybe share a hidden fact. Because, I mean, you're kind of known as like the, the Bitcoin energy boy, I think people come to you for advice on that or there was at least a period where you were asked to talk about that a lot i would like to not be known as that anymore right can can i shed a reputation i what if i have other interests this can be your rebranding <laughs> yeah so i mean i just wrote one column about it and then i felt compelled to write like five more but is that sufficient to make me the bitcoin energy person i don't think so I don't know, but it seems people come to you with their questions a lot. Yeah, even though I'm not actually a miner, you know, I don't have actual expertise in that stuff. Just, you know, you don't have to be like a genius to rebut some of the academic nonsense on the topic. You just have to be, I don't know, you have to have a lot of perseverance or something and tolerance for nonsense. Yeah, to be honest, I don't know much about it at all. I just know that the common argument is a sort of rebuttal against Bitcoin cryptos in general because they use energy. But is there like a specific, like, is there a recurring metric? Is it just the the fact that Bitcoin uses more energy than some countries? Yeah, I mean, it uses more energy than small countries. Uh, Plenty of industries do. Um, The zinc extraction industry uses the equivalent amount of energy to Bitcoin. Zinc. When was the last time you thought about zinc? Whenever I, mean, I get sick. I actually think about it a lot. But yeah, I think about it a lot too. Uh, so Bad example. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no questioning the utility of zinc. So that was, yeah, terrible example because, you know, zinc is acknowledged as a great thing. But uh, copper extraction uses twice as much energy as Bitcoin. Um, and no one ever complains about it. And that's not to say that we should take the volume of complaints about Bitcoin and double it for copper. That'd be insane. But I guess the point is people, you know, it really depends on your frame of reference. Like, okay, more energy than Argentina, more energy than Luxembourg, whatever. But, you know, we don't typically make these industry level comparisons to countries. You should compare industries with industries. Uh, And, you know, in the grand scheme, Bitcoin is like a mid-sized industry in 
it also delivers like a pretty useful product the same way that metal extraction delivers us a useful product. So it's really, the debate is not really about the energy consumption. It's about the societal utility of Bitcoin. Yeah, it's interesting because I had never, and I mean, I guess I'm biased because I come from like as a member of the community, but I'd always thought of it in terms of, I don't know, gold when looking at like monetary regimes and like how, I don't know, anything that is produced creates some sort of impact. I think there's that common economic saying that's like, there's an optimal level of pollution. <laughs> I tweeted this once sure. and got yeah. attacked, but it's true. I mean, in order to produce anything, you're going to produce waste and subsequently pollution. So, yeah. I, I, I don't know, it is a productive 100%. industry, but... Well, yeah, I mean, and it's just people that don't believe in Bitcoin's merit. Sorry, there's like construction happening out there. I don't know if you can hear that. People that don't believe in Bitcoin's core merit dispute its energy bill, but that's just a them problem. It's just their inability to grasp the utility of Bitcoin. A hundred million people worldwide have grasped it. So just because some, you know, elite academic or, you know, journalist in the U.S. doesn't get it, that says more about them than it says about Bitcoin. And yeah, with gold, gold extraction consumes more energy than Bitcoin, by the way. Mm. Uh, and that's all diesel. That's not any, it can't be made renewable unless you have um, some magical replacement for diesel, which is made of plants or something. Well, I guess like, is gasoline made of plants originally? I have no idea. I thought it was made of dead stuff. Dead plants. Yeah, from really back yeah. in the day. Um, anyway, Bitcoin is, you know, fully, fully synthetic, fully electrified. So you can render it more renewable by altering the composition of the energy sources that go into the grid that supports Bitcoin mining. It could, in theory, be 100% renewable. Gold can never be rendered, you know, ecologically sound because gold involves sifting through tons of earth. Like a high-yield uh, gold seam, like gold ore that's considered to be rich, is something like 6 to 10 grams of gold per ton of ore. Think about sifting through a ton of ore and then think about getting, you know, seven grams of gold out of that. And so that's an immensely disruptive process. You know, you're literally like carving holes into the earth. Cyanide is very common in, in gold extraction, mercury. You know, if you go to any of these strip mines in Africa um, where people discover seams of gold, Thousands of people will just flock to the area and start mining on an informal basis and just emit this mercury effluent into rivers, basically. And, you know, despite all that, I still think gold is, you know, an incredibly useful resource, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's just there's costs. Um, and just because a monetary institution isn't, you know, the most obvious thing in terms of the merit it, you know, brings to society you know, those costs are still probably worth it um, because, you know, you, it's, you're getting a sound money standard out of it. Right. Opportunity cost. Is, do you think that's the most frivolous, frivolous FUD against Bitcoin is the energy thing? Because for me, I, I don't know, I think there's a lot of, I see a lot of debate about whether or not it has like intrinsic value and if that could, if that would allow it to serve as uh, 
in place of like fiat money and regimes, stuff like that. But my focus is usually more macro. I don't find it to be frivolous. I find it to be very sincere uh, much of the time. I mean, from people that believe in degrowth, um, which is a whole separate topic. But uh, I think it is legitimately the number one best uh, angle of attack against Bitcoin because capital is so politicized these days. And so you can genuinely weaponize ESG concerns uh, and you can eliminate Bitcoin from the investment mandate of most institutional investors if you get the cacophony of noise loud enough. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've seen this happen firsthand. 100% is real. Pension funds, endowments, state-level investment, you know, pools of capital, um, basically prohibited or refusing to get exposure to Bitcoin despite having a positive view on the asset because of the environmental concerns. Yeah. Um, now, whether you want those allocators to have exposure to the thing or you think it should just be stay retail phenomenon, it's a different question. But um, yeah, like capital in the West is politicized, no question about it. And um, like we're <laughs> like, just look at... Um, Look at Royal Dutch Shell. Uh, there's a lawsuit uh, recently saying that they're responsible for the emissions of their clients, which like doesn't really make any sense. But um, you know that's like crippling the company. Exxon. I don't know if you saw this. There's um, an activist investor, like Engine Number One or something, which um, just put you know two or three like hostile board members managed to appoint them. Uh, because I think BlackRock like supported their campaign. So um, because we have this concentration and who makes these sort of allocative decisions and like who has these governance uh, powers uh, in capital markets, you can actually push through like pretty radical stuff, um, especially as it pertains to the environment. And so like we're, you know, we recently I just saw like I think there's an insurance company that said, you know, they're not going to like provide DNO insurance to like members of, of the NRA or officers of the NRA or something like that. So I don't know if that's the best example, but um, all of financial services and just like capital allocation is becoming politicized. And so this is legitimately a strong weapon to wield against Bitcoin because it's becoming a totally default assumption that capital isn't just capital. Capital should, you know, contain a social mandate. And uh, that's that's been a successful means of attack. No question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think on that topic of politicization, the Federal Reserve is becoming increasingly political. And that is an interesting topic in economics right now as to whether or not the Fed will continue to be a relatively independent financial intermediary or whether or not it will be more tempted to, I think as Larry White said, inflate away fiscal debts incurred by uh, presidents. So I think that's an interesting topic in general with the central bank becoming an increasingly political institution. Its relationship with BlackRock is very interesting. I'm not sure if you know much about that whole dynamic. So BlackRock's everywhere, but the Fed in general, it's also quite divided internally. I don't know if people are 
are too aware of that. The division I noticed was between like the anti-stablecoin camp and then the more accommodating camp. Like Brainard seems really, I don't know if that's how you pronounce her name, really anti-stables. Um, and then who is the governor that made a speech recently that was like surprisingly super pro stable coins? Did you see this? Yeah, I did. I don't remember who it was though. There's a few that have been coming out and I just I wish that Judy Shelton had been appointed because then we would have seen some real division. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the division, too, is just on where the economy is and where the economy is going. There's no consensus there uh, as there was last year or even earlier this year. People are are quite divided um, about inflation, about when we should start tapering, stuff like that. Um, well, if but you, with... You, if you even look at like political polls, it's, there's an immense partisan division in terms of uh, how the economy is perceived to be, which is wild to me that your you know your political persuasions would affect your view of like whether you are doing well economically, <laughs> given the same you know reality that we all share. So like right now, conservatives are you know they think that the economy is in a bad state, basically. And then liberals are super optimistic about the economy. But we're all in the same economy. Yeah, it's interesting. Especially the optimism that I've seen, especially coming from the sort of liberal side, is toward labor and infrastructure, which have both faced a lot of stagnation. I know people like Tyler Cowen argue that we're like in the great stagnation. Uh, technology and wages have both sort of flattened. And there's a lot of emphasis on both of those things. And Powell, chairman of the Fed, for those who, I don't know, maybe are blissfully ignorant of everything <laughs> going on with the Federal Reserve, um, has put a lot of emphasis on labor as well. And so I think that's very interesting because if you use labor as a measure of how we're doing, it, it would look like we're not doing so great. But when you actually look at growth and productivity rebounds, it appears that we're on a good track, but it's just showing this disparity between labor and productivity. So, But I feel like if you really wanted to you know, support labor at the expense of capital, like that's what I see as the big you know, dynamic. You can, like corporates can either do well or their workers can do well, right? Um, and in the last... Well, since the 70s, really, it's capital that has won at the expense of labor. Everybody knows that. If I don't see Powell's policy, not that I'm an expert on the Fed or anything, as accretive to labor right now. I mean, as asset prices go up, isn't that evidence that it's capital that's getting paid out um, as, opposed to, uh, as opposed to regular workers? Well, his whole focus is on substantial further progress, which he says won't be reached until we've uh, seen labor accelerate to the point it was pre-pandemic. So his marker for whether or not the economy is back on track is completely focused on labor, which is why he thinks that we shouldn't stop. It doesn't really make any sense when you really think about it, but he's fronting his argument with the idea that labor needs to rebound to where it was before uh, because full employment is the, the Fed's chief goal right now. Uh, as opposed to, you know, with its dual mandate, it's not really looking too much at price stability because it thinks that it's temporary, or at least Powell has been speaking for the Fed saying that it's temporary. 
the uh, the Fed's mandate. Do you notice it getting broader? Um, yeah, I've I've heard. I don't know how sincere this is, but I've heard members of the Fed saying that they have to address topics like social justice or the environment, um, which you know you'd think would be way outside of their remit, but it seems that they now believe they have the ability to influence these things through monetary policy. <laughs> You can influence a lot through monetary policy. And I think in general, we're seeing this trend of institutions straying out of their original lanes and, and going everywhere. I don't know, like the CDC is the organization in the United States that uh, called for the, the freezing of, um, of evictions and uh, of like rent hikes. And for a really long time, like people just went with it. But recently there were a few court rulings that deemed it unconstitutional the cdc yeah the cd i actually wrote about this the other day yeah i I wrote about this the other day in one of my newsletters because it was um and i had found this on accident because i was just writing about california and what and how newsom wants to to pay uh back rents for its tenants because they ended up having a somehow california has a budget surplus don't know how that happened but they have a lot of money and so his idea was to to pay all back rents for tenants and when i was investigating that a bit more i realized that the reason the the freeze that's hap- that's going to be um it it expires on july 31st was called for by the cdc so the cdc did that which is definitely not a health thing really but i saw on some forums some places cuz i really went down a rabbit hole people were arguing that it is a health issue because not being able to pay rent uh, yes, is a health yes. issue. Everything is a health so. issue. Yeah, I remember, yeah. Um, don't know if I'll get canceled for saying this, but uh, attending protests was seen as, um, you know, part of uh, uh, the health care mandate uh, during, you know, the summer of love uh, last year. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, a lot of things seem to be a health issue. I, anything can be a health issue if you think about it hard enough. Veganism is a health issue. <laughs> Well, that's true. I mean, can we? It is true. Are we talking about that yet? Or we can talk about you, this. I'm, not, this is my you, this is my expose video. I'm not vegan anymore. But yeah, um, you told me that I couldn't say anything about that. I decided, you know, I was like, why am I keeping it a secret? I can't, I can't front it anymore. Is this the first time you're coming out as a non-vegan? Yeah, this is the first time. There's wow. six long years. Six years. Six years. Yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, we had breakfast. I don't think you ate any meat, though. So I had fish. Oh, you had fish. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, it was smoked salmon. That sounds weird. Like, I had fish for breakfast. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, some Europeans do. So tell us, what was the... Now Now I'm the interviewer. What was the... Right. What, what, what motivated you to quit being a vegan after half a decade? It was just such a... I don't know. When I So when I first went vegan... There weren't a lot of like alternatives. There weren't a lot of fake meats. There was not a lot of fake cheese. And everything that did exist tasted terrible. So back then, I was a lot more focused on... And I had a lot more time back then to cook and, you know, actually look at what I was putting in my body on like a very, very technical scale uh, and to like measure out things, like make sure I was getting the right proteins. And I mean, it wasn't enjoyable back then, I'll say that, because it just... It was... And I was like eating like lentils and quinoa every day and it, it wasn't very t- tasty. 
But over time, as more substitutes became available and I got busier, it became really easy to just, I don't know, get like those microwavable things or get the things you pop in the oven and, and not really pay attention to like what I was consuming. So, and this is a personal problem. I don't know. I, and I've heard a lot of vegans talk about this though. So maybe it's not just a personal problem, but I started having like low potassium, low iron. And then I like, right when I would fix it, it would like go right back down and yeah. it's just not sustainable. Well, you made the right choice. I think. Um, I actually recently quit being keto, so... I don't know how you did that. I had my own dietary journey, but I was keto for, like, three months and then quit. It was impossible, so... What can't... Can you eat bread when you're keto? No, I mean, no. Oh, I mean, God. it's, like, unbelievably restrictive. Like, you're not even meant to have, like, milk in your coffee or anything. It's, uh... It's terrible, so... Well, I'm lactose intolerant, so I won't be going back to dairy, but... So are you you're not going full carnivore, are you? I don't know. So I don't know. I don't know if I could because it kind of now it kind of freaks me out. I don't know why, but the thought of like, I don't really care what other people do. I don't know. I started eating fish. It's good. Oh, God, I missed fish. Fish I missed crab cakes. Fish is great. I mean, Maryland grabbed. Well, I guess you're not from Maryland, but no, I'm not from Maryland. Um. Yeah, could you chow down on like a twenty-two ounce steak right now? Is that even possible? I I think I would get sick. Yeah, probably. I would probably get really sick. Yeah, I probably need one, but I'd probably get really sick. I would. I will say, I would crave steak from time to time, and that was always like my sign that I was low on iron. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. Yeah, um, are you gonna grill for the uh, for Fourth of July? Is that something that you do? I don't know. Maybe. I don't... I forgot it was this weekend. Yeah. I mean, this is like this the festival of grilling this weekend. That's, it really is. That's what, that's what good Americans do. Independence Day. Do you think... Do you think an independent central bank is achievable? Totally no. Absolutely not. No. I'm, I'm a cynic about it. I think... Um, like you have varying degrees of independence, of course, but I think it was always a myth to believe that um, central banks were somehow outside of the state apparatus and like unaware of like the goals of the treasury and somehow not acting in concert with them. I mean, we're seeing debt monetization. It's not like explicit. It's like oblique, you know, it's like subtle. Well, it's not that subtle, but I mean, it's not like foreigners are buying the debt. We know who's buying the debt. So in the UK, I think they have explicit debt monetization, right, if I'm not mistaken. Um, here it's just implicit. But is there really much of a difference there? I don't see much of a difference. So, you know, th- I think this is like the classic, like, Luke Groman, you know, point. Like, the central bank will do what it has to do when we're in an extreme situation like this where we have an enormous deficit, we have a twin deficit, we have an enormous debt to GDP ratio, and the fiscal position needs to be reset. Um, I know FinTwit's not going to like me for saying that, um, and you have like a disproportionately FinTwit audience, so I have to be careful what I say on here. But um, I have to be careful. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, they expect me to like just like you know spout Bitcoiner talking points. I think you you're trying to like straddle the line between you know radical bitcoiner and like respectable person 
<laughs> I try, but I don't know. And I struggle with it a lot too, I think, because I want to believe that it could exist theoretically, but in practice, I just don't think, and I, I don't know. It was very interesting when Janet Yellen was appointed treasury of the secretary, or the secretary, the secretary of the treasury. Oh my God. Treasury of the secretary. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was really interesting to me. And the sort of role she's taken on, especially with a lot of the comments she makes. Yeah. It's interesting because she doesn't have to be as careful now that she's not chairman of the federal reserve, but I mean, isn't She's that actually, evidence for the fact that there's no real distinction, no real separation, the fact there's this tight revolving oh, door between the two institutions? Yes, definitely. Right. Yeah, I mean, she's the one point. who called for Congress to raise their to raise the debt ceiling. So. I mean, to me, it's like a paradox. Can, like, a government institution, you know, somehow be independent of the state? Like, can God, you know, make a wall that he can't? break like it's the same thing like of course not the only institution that's independent of human discretion is something like bitcoin and even that you know can be changed dare i say like not you know maybe not the core values but that's the whole point of bitcoin and like that's kind of the whole thing about like the literature about monetary rules right like how do you devise a good monetary rule that can never be tampered with well you can't because all monetary rules are beholden to political discretion to the extent that they're implemented by a state. Um, and so you can have like a commodity based, you know, monetary system, which with the rule becomes a function of like nature and like your ability to pull rocks out of the ground. Um, but yeah, like all state based monetary rules are doomed to fail. Uh, and so we have the first, non-discretionary monetary standard ever um and it's a non-state system and even then like we're going to be fighting over keeping the rules intact i'm sure like if bitcoin gets big enough um we're going to be we'll have like a neo william jennings bryan that you know takes this like populist campaign to like increase the supply of bitcoin um and uh because you know we need to like bail out uh the debtors or whatever and so they'll be like 30 years from now we'll have like a, a bitcoin jennings brian who who will like come around and and be like yeah no we have to change the monetary policy and maybe he'll succeed i don't know yeah that's an interesting topic and i find myself thinking about it a lot especially in terms of i don't know things like free banking regimes whether or not it's possible to not have a lender of last resort and some mechanism by which a central bank could inject liquidity just because of the behavior of consumers. I think that when you look at the individuals who make up the aggregates, consumer behavior is very interesting, and it's definitely been heavily influenced by, you know, the, obviously the world we live in. But I think if we were to have a free banking system or even like a Bitcoin standard implicitly there's a huge shift in consumer like consumers would have to change how they behave we know free banking is possible it's possible but is it it's, it's but been is it? successful i mean the i guess the question is how do we get to free banking from here we have to do it in a sly roundabout way right right <laughs> <laughs> but yes it has been successful it's been successful we've it's not just like one era when it's been 
We had like a hundred year period in Scotland when it worked. In Canada for an extended period, I believe in the 1800s, it was also, you know, pretty successful in contrast to the dysfunctional U.S. system. Um, and then, of course, there's also the Swedish example and the Swiss example. I'm sure if you looked hard enough, you'd find other instances of successful free banking. Mm-hmm. It's just that, you know, they have varying levels of documentation. And I think the question is, like, are the our expectations of the modern state such that we uh, have collectively designated this level of power and control to the state such that free banking no longer seems relevant as a way to organize society? You know, have we consigned over this enormous power to the state permanently? And my, like, contention would be no. Like, we now have technological tools with which we can withdraw those powers from the state and return them to the private sector. Um, and so, to me, like, Bitcoin is the last piece of the puzzle in, like, the neo-free banking standard. Um, but I, yeah, it's something that very few, I mean, most people aren't even aware of free banking. So. Yeah, I, I used to always tweet, like, abolish the Fed, and people would come at me and be like, what, what are you talking about? What do we have? And I would just link George Selgin's paper. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, we never had successful free banking here. Mm-mm. And, in fact, whenever people talk about free banking in the U.S., they use it to slander free banking. Mm-hmm. It's, it, I mean, Lael Brainard recently, in her talk, she was, crit- like, criticizing the antebellum this I was so mad about this. She was criticizing the antebellum, you know, uh, instability of the of the privately issued uh, currencies, um, you know, in the pre-Civil War era, uh, to compare them to stable coins, which is a really apt comparison. Um, but I mean, and I'm sure you saw like Selgin and White were like totally fired up by this because yeah. they've spent their like whole careers trying to debunk. The notion that we had pure free banking in the pre-Civil War era, it wasn't real free banking. It's like I feel like a socialist being like, that wasn't real socialism. That wasn't <laughs> real free banking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was It was wrongly alleged to be free banking. It wasn't unrestricted. It didn't have, it wasn't laissez-faire. You know, like the states exercised control. They made the banks buy these like state-issued instruments the state's restricted branching, as in like the ability of a bank to diversify its geographic footprint and, you know, you know, expand nationwide, right? And so banks ended up siloed and localized, which meant that they were exposed to like local idiosyncratic risk in terms of like their depositors. And they weren't able to you know, diversify their portfolios. Uh, and additionally, they weren't able to, you know, spread their brand and their vintage, you know, nationwide. And so you had this weird situation with obviously the notes trading at discounts, depending on which city you're on. And you'd have to look at the newspaper and see, you know, oh, if you're in New York, you'd have to see, well, like, is what's a bank of, you know, Indiana note worth here? Okay, it's like a discount of like three cents on the dollar. But that was because the states themselves were limiting what the banks could do. Uh, and so 
it wasn't laissez-faire banking, it wasn't free banking. Uh, and so it's totally unfair to, to slander the good name of free banking uh, with reference to the, to the characteristics of the pre-Civil War uh, era in free banking. Um, so yeah, Layal needs to read more of uh, George Selgin's work in conclusion. I think everybody needs to read more of Selgin's work. But yeah, I'm a huge Selgin stan. I had a fight with him the other day. That broke my um, heart. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know whose side to pick, so I didn't say anything. You seemed distraught. Yeah, I, we, I was distraught. <laughs> we made up. Um, I I regret what I said. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he went in on you too, though. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, I called him a fiat economist, which is really unfair. <laughs> it's really unfair because he's like a, he's one of the few, you know, good economists. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have learned so much from, like, there's a bunch of George Selgin books behind me you probably can't see. Um, but yeah, and then I think he was, he made up with me after I wrote that column saying that I disagreed with Article 7 in the Salvadoran law. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're friends now. Yeah, oh, that's a big thing too. You held the, the Twitter spaces with the president. Oh, well, yeah. But foreign diplomat action. People are making fun of me for talking about that, so I have to. They are. Yeah, I, I've apparently I you know talked about it too much, and and so I, I can't. Wow. Yeah, I, I have to be silent about it now. So. Wow. But yeah, Selgin, you know, he's actually been defending Bitcoiners lately, which is so cool. He's. Like I've seen that. He's been defending them a lot. Something's changed. Yeah, he attacked Taleb. It's like the, the handshake meme. It's like you know, economists, Bitcoiners, like, fighting with Taleb. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's funny. Oh, man. Well, so, speaking of the internet, I have this mug. <laughs> that's another chapter I'd like to put behind me. I do use this, by the way. My parents saw this, and they were like, who is that? What did you tell um, them? I had to, I well, I read them the back of it. And they oh, were because still the tweet's on the back. The tweet's yeah, on the back. The tweet is on the back. Um, and they were slightly confused. And I was like, it's a Twitter thing. And they were like, okay, yeah, makes sense. We don't get any of that. So what I don't understand about, um, what's the guy's name? Eric Holthouse? Yes. Is like how he became so popular. Because I believe he's actually just a weatherman. Like weather, discussions of weather, like is his thing. Um, so how is there that much demand for that, um, kind of content? I don't know, but I just think like the, the range in this tweet about you, like these are the libertarian nerds who are currently torching our planet's clean energy for fun and profit. By any definition, they are some of the most violent people on earth. There's a lot in there. (laughs) Putting vulnerable and marginalized people's lives at risk for their own wealth. But like, it just starts off by being like, oh, haha, he's a libertarian nerd. And then it's like, you're storching the planet. Like, okay. I mean, I'm not even a libertarian. I don't know. He can't. See, I get that all the time too, though. People call me a libertarian. Because you're like Cato affiliated. You're Cato proximate. By association. Adjacent. I was actually supposed to have a written piece come out in one of Cato's things, like in print. Uh, And that sort of um, moved away from that a bit. But (laughs) 
<laughs> then I need to be an official libertarian. Right. And I already get the, the libertarian flack, the Austrian stuff, which I am not an Austrian economist, by the way. Me so. neither. I mean, I'm not an economist, period. So, but you, I mean, you're a real, you're actually an economist. So, <laughs> people assume because I go to Mason that I am. And look, like, I think like Austrian methodology has a lot of really interesting points. And I think economics is a, a toolkit. And so sometimes, you know, I look at, I don't know, I guess what some would call like Austrian angles of like praxeology, methodological individualism yada 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 but it's not like i don't research like that i'm very conventional i was like like kicked out of the austrian circles at mason because i was too technical <laughs> so wow you were i don't belong they, anywhere they disavowed you yeah i mean i just don't um i know this is sounds cliched but like what about just not having political labels is that is that allowed i mean so i would tell people that i would say you know i'm not i don't i don't really think i fit into any one school i use like uh, you know, collection of resources to form my ideas and theory. And people were like, well, you have to come from somewhere. So where is it? And I was like, I don't know. I guess you could say older Chicago stuff. Sort of, I follow Roth a lot, Al Roth. He's modern, obviously, but I guess that's where most of my stuff comes from. I was doing a lot of IO stuff using like um, Williamson and Hart. Williams, Oliver Williamson, who died last year, or was it this year? It was last year very sad but yeah i don't know austrians and people love to hate on austrian economics too and so i just get like i just get all the heat i learned about austrian economics from bitcoin like really because of the nakamoto institute um Interesting. they referenced all the austrian literature i'm like okay well all these smart bitcoiners are always talking about it i guess i should learn what it is um mm. i didn't do economics in school actually don't tell anyone, but I like basically failed economics. <laughs> Don't um, tell anyone, but <laughs> your your FinTwit followers are gonna love that. They're yeah. gonna be so. They're probably. Gonna I mean, so that. I chose economics randomly as my degree uh, in undergrad. Literally, did not know a thing about economics. Clicked a random button on a screen, and here I am. So. Wow. I think, you know. And you had you were doing an econ PhD. Yeah, I got my master's. So it just so happened that the thing you like threw a dart at, you know, this whatever, the syllabus and you picked economics, it turned out that you'd have real knack for it. Yeah, it turned out that it was actually something I was very interested in. I can thank Thomas Rustisi for that. So you used to be all about uh planes and airports. That was like your prior brand. And then you jettisoned that, but I actually think you should go, not that you should go back to it, but it was great. <laughs> I liked the plane chatter. Yeah, I was I, I, was I miss that. it so much. My, uh, Robin Hansen actually emailed me yesterday, like no subject, no, <laughs> no, no bot, like no message body, just a link to, uh, to a paper on airports that came out of Chicago, I think. Uh, on airline competition. Uh, I do, it was a very interesting field and I talked about this a long time ago, but I, I did it to get closer to my dad because they had moved back to California and I missed him and, you know, he's managing safety at an airport. So I was like, well, if I, you know, say that I'm going back for research meetings, then nobody can 
say, you know, oh, why are you always, you know, going back home, you're in a PhD, you need to, you know, focus and be lonely like the rest of us. So I, I started going back for, for that, and he would take me to the airport, and I would meet with Southwest. I was, I'd always go down to their uh, command center on the tarmac and, and wow. look at operations and stuff. And then I ended up realizing it was super interesting. So I don't know. I'm trying to find a way to, like, integrate it into stuff I'm doing now. It's just so difficult because there's so much. Like, when I was still doing all the research on airlines, and granted, I was taking engineering classes on air transportation, very technical engineering classes too. Like now I know how engines work and stuff. I was running like Python models on efficiency for flying aircraft with different engines and whatnot. But it was just so much to try to learn <laughs> and then also try to like focus on monetary stuff or whatever. It just became so unsustainable. Well, aerospace engineering and monetary policy are, are inextricably linked without question. I'm being completely it. serious. <laughs> If you think about, think about all the greatest planes that this country ever built, the greatest planes, they were built in the sound money era. I mean, in the, well, the gold standard, we weren't on a pure gold standard, but, you know, they were right. built basically in the 50s and 60s. Uh, the SR-71, obviously, mm -hmm. is like the absolute pinnacle of engineering was built without computers. It was built with slide rules, you know, like slide rules. Um, it was built, I believe in the sixties it was designed, um, and, you know, fastest, uh, human piloted, um, aircraft ever built, um, mm -hmm. well, production aircraft, um, used until the nineties, Dick Cheney canceled it, um, tragically. Um, and yeah, we didn't build any good planes after 1971. So they're all pretty bad. And I think the lesson in there i mean they're all like the reason why most of the crashes now happen is because of automation which i don't want to you know shade automation but the aviation industry is it's really weird they're really behind technologically and they they're really slow to uh, to adapt and to adopt certain forms of technology and then they end up with like these terrible crashes because boeing can't get its act together and pitot tubes break that was the Air France issue in 2004. A pitot tube broke, and they, the automated system didn't alert them, so they just stalled and crashed in the middle of the ocean. Well, the Boeing 737 MAX was automation gone mm -hmm. awry, right? That was mm -hmm. the plane overruling the pilot, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So let me ask you this. If you were the uh, aviation czar, I guess, what do they call it? Secretary of Transportation, is that mm -hmm. a department? What so. changes would you make to like airport policy if you could wave a wand? Oh my gosh, I would take away the slot allocation method. And so that's what my research was on previously. It's so inefficient because essentially an airport slot is a period of time where uh, an airline is given like complete monopoly power over it and they get to fly in and out during this period. And if there's any delays incurred in this period by that airline, they just push back to a later time slot, right? So then they end up interfering. The whole goal of it is to reduce congestion, but it creates congestion. And it's the uh, TSA, or not TSA, sorry, the FAA gives it out by historical precedence. So as long as you've held the slot, you get the slot. And as long as you use it 70% of the time, you get to keep it. And it's so inefficient. It's so inefficient. It's so terrible. It's it, like, 
that has got to be one of the worst. And then, I don't know, you look at like the current administration kind of lean towards these like breaking up antitrust because all these big corporations are so efficient. I'm like, you're the one creating the problems. Yeah, I also <laughs> hate the slot allocation method. It's, it creates so many problems. And the, just the way that airports time flights or like give airlines the power to time flights as long as there's no sort of incentive for them to reduce congestion they're not going to because it doesn't cost them that much i think it's like 60 million a year on average on a on paying for delays which to them is not much what is the superior method to the slot allocation method well so what i was researching was auctions but that sounds like the crypto auction theory could like get pretty pretty dense and then i was like oh what if there was a betting market that so I was creating like a model that would essentially like predict levels of efficiency based on it was like a nested model that like could could parse out whether or not you caused um, delays to like yourself or to others and then whether or not those were uh, seeping into other airports or whatnot I don't know so what kind of auction do you think is most suitable for the so airports? that's a, I had given up at that point I hadn't I hadn't gotten the answer yet. That's, yeah. I mean, we love auctions. Well, no. I think all economists like auctions, probably. Yeah, they're great. What's but your favorite kind of auction? I don't know if I have a favorite. I think uh, Vickery auctions are pretty cool. Vickery auctions. I don't know. Because I see, I had a hard time. Mm. I think in game theory, like the game theory of sealed bid auctions in general ha is is interesting because there's a lot of error in assumption we see them in uh being deployed in handshake i think successfully um although the biggest problem i think is really that no one understands how it works <laughs> and so you know that's kind of a problem in in its own right so i think sometimes economists assume that you know, their intricate schemes are like comprehensible and you have to include some like tolerance for the fact that market participants just don't understand the system. Yeah, that that is the issue I see in game theory a lot in general is just assuming that the participants are like very smart and very aware of what's going on mm -hmm. when it's not necessarily the case. So, um, what was the, what was this, uh, pot, what was meant to be the topic of this podcast? I feel like we didn't, um, actually hit on any single topic. J uh, yeah. And just general, like a, a lot of, a lot of things, I think fed stuff. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally not a good, I don't really, I try to pay as little attention to the fed as possible because I just, that institution to me is not credible and, you know, I don't think. You know, I think there's this fallacy of like trying to reform institutions instead of just um, obviously building like good new institutions don't emerge because you successfully push the reform through the old one. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that's that's my big critique of like what I call the incrementalist camp, as in, you know, people that, you know, think our current system can be fixed um, if only we were to target end GDP or something, you know, oh, just, yeah. right, if we write enough uh Scott papers. Sumner. 
and uh and you know just like persuade the powers that be to adopt a different model um you know like my view has always been it's far more impactful to build a competing institution um from the ground up that will apply pressure to the existing institution um and obviously that's what i think bitcoin does it just exposes the you know it kind of the, the flaws of the the legacy institution just by contrast you know just by its mere existence and so this is something we've talked about a little bit which is you know bitcoin is so purely auditable and like answers about it can be found it's like technical precise answers exist whereas if you ask these same questions about you know like the dollar system it's literally impossible to get an answer and you actually get attacked for asking the question like what is the supply of dollars? You'd think that's like a pretty straightforward question. No. And in fact, not only is it not a straight, it's not even a valid question. Asking the question betrays your ignorance of the subject matter is, is the reaction I've gotten. It's like, you know, you adopt this like childlike innocence. It's like, okay, what's the supply of dollars? It's like, no, Nick, you're not allowed to ask that. You are ignorant and you're not part of our secret club. Um, you should know better. <laughs> uh, in fact, I think, you know, there's like a deliberate kind of unspoken policy, like not even to to actually try and obfuscate answers to these things as much as possible and like engage in maximal amount of gatekeeping. Um, I think the complexity is the point. <laughs> mm -hmm. the, the opacity and the complexity is the point. Like what's the rate of creation of new dollars? What metric should I use to evaluate inflation like um you know what's the supply like you can't get answers to these things you could ask like a hundred different uh economists and not not you know get a hundred different answers uh whereas like with bitcoin you can you know literally just run a command and find the supply and you could also do some basic analysis mind like the current active supply you know like supply active in like the last 12 months or something so to me, that's like the beauty of Bitcoin is just like it really exposes the complexity and Byzantine nature of like, you know, the its alternative. Yeah, it's interesting you say the thing about audits. Actually, somebody, I just remember this, somebody DM'd me this morning saying that you mentioned to them that I might be able to help them look for a source uh, about how hard it is to audit the Fed's total dollar supply. And again, with CPI, PC, it's like you really use... I, you really use whatever tools. Oh gosh, I'm, I have to be so careful about this. But it really, is a matter of using whatever tools fit the narrative. And there really isn't a pure strategy here for what is actually happening. I keep seeing these like adjusted measures of CPI, where it's like CPI, and we pulled out energy costs and we pulled mm -hmm. out food costs. It's like, well, have you been doing that consistently, or are you just opportunistically yeah, altering the measure? To be to be fair, they have like it's always kind of been that way, which makes it skewed. And then it's always only for urban consumers. And then if you look at non like people who don't live in cities, it's very different. And then if you look at all consumers, it's different. So it's it's very hard to find an accurate yeah. measure. I just I guess it just. If any, because like the actual CPI measure itself is like this is like 
bundled assumptions. I'm not going to say that, you know, CPI is fake or, you know, like we should switch to the sh the Chapwood index or like shadow stats or whatever. Um, but what I will say about CPI is that it contains so many nested assumptions. It's very hard to actually audit like how it is devised. Um, like there's regressions in there determining how much better a mobile phone is today as opposed to 10 years ago. That's included in CPI. That's so unbelievably complex. Mm -hmm. um, and so could like a regular person like look at the guts of CPI and like see how it's determined? Like, absolutely not. I'm not even sure that the CPI code is available anywhere. Is it, is it, you know, like on GitHub or something? I don't think so. I don't, no, I, don't I don't, I think it's like pretty internal. Yeah. So that's, I would say that's actually my critique of CPI. Not that it's like wrong or like doesn't track reality. Like definitely I, you know, think asset prices also matter and you know it's not unambiguously good that asset prices go up there's a whole discussion we had about that but that cpi is so unauditable that of course you're going to get a lot of internet cranks and uh bitcoiners that reject it because it's the most complex thing ever and there's so much gatekeeping around it and when you just dig into it a little bit, it contains all of these completely wild nested assumptions like hedonic adjustments, which only goes one way, by the way. Like you can only hedonically adjust things when technology improves. But so returning to your your field of expertise, like what about the fact that flying, the experience of flying has gotten worse? Have we had a negative hedonic adjustment to account for the fact that seats have gotten smaller and flying is a miserable experience these days? No, because there's no facility to hedonically adjust things downward and say inflation is understated because the quality of product you're getting, seats shrinking, is getting worse, right? Um, yeah. So, like, I, to me, it seems like a lot of it is 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 designed to understate uh inflation consumer welfare is only included when it is beneficial to whatever narrative they're trying to achieve so you have to take those things with a grain of salt in that respect i think of course so, they're gonna be the people who run with the oh she said it's bad but yeah so i know i feel like i'm i'm getting into dangerous territory because you have to be friends with these people um, mm -hmm. but I don't have to. So, right. um, so let me ask you about, um, asset price inflation. I mean, is that a real thing or who is it? Like Cullen Roach is like the, the big person who says that it's not real or even if it's real, it's not bad. Um, I think mostly people have pivoted to, okay, it might be real, but it's not bad for society. Um, so what, what are your views on that? I think it's real. And I think, it's hard to tell whether or not it's bad at this point in time, but I think it's inevitably going to burst. Like, personally, I think it's doomed. But, I mean, I tend to look at things with a bit of cynicism in that way where I'm like, oh, God, the bubble's going to burst. We're all, you know, it's, it's not going to be great when it happens. But I think especially with the Fed's relationship, uh, I have to be very careful 
See, I, you, I, you're gonna have to become more untethered if you're gonna do a podcast. Right? Yeah. Do I want to yeah. be unhinged? You, well, you can't guard your words. That's the whole yeah. point. This is your show. You can say whatever you want. Well, I think it's it exists, and I don't think it's great. And I think, I think, it exists because of current mechanisms in place. And one day these mechanisms will expire, and we will realize that we've gotten ourselves into a very sticky situation. So. I just, I see it as like, so one, there's like the inequality narrative, right? So wealthy people own financial assets, middle class owns fewer, but some, and then obviously the working class basically owns none. Uh, and so financial asset prices go up, then inequality increases. That's like, a, I don't know if you can really contest that, which is obviously why we see more discussion around capital gains tax and things like that, because now the government is trying to remediate the inequality, which, in my opinion, they caused through, um, you know, this relationship between monetary policy and financial asset prices, which I don't know if you can dispute that anymore. I mean, does anyone actually dispute that, that, um, that like QE affects financial asset prices, at least? I've seen some arguments. People are still disputing it. Yeah, but I don't think it's, it's not very common. It's not the conventional... Uh, argument so you know there's that there's the fact that um if asset prices increase inequality increases and there are political constraints to inequality arthur hayes said this in a great recent blog post that inequality ends when a revolution occurs right that's a way to reset society mm -hmm. right like heads on pikes kind of thing and nobody wants to talk about that like i think economists wants to stay within the do you know the domain of like policy i wrote about and, it the other day oh maybe i'm just channeling your your newsletter <laughs> but nobody wants to talk about the fact that like this isn't just like numbers on a spreadsheet but this is like people's lives and people's perception of society and society can have these sharp breaks from time to time mm -hmm. so i think and like you know if you read like peter turchin you know you read any of these like longer you zoom out a little bit and you like look at the longer cycle of history like the progression is not always towards things getting better, you know, like it's cyclical, you know, like it's just like never ending conflict between labor and capital and capital has had the best 70 years ever. And labor has had a terrible, you know, last 50 years. And so we're at sort of like a gilded age equivalent or at a neo gilded age. Um, and um, I think the, the real ultimate constraint is not something that can be put into a model, but it's just people like completely snapping and, um, you know, embracing socialism or um, effectively demanding expropriation. Um, and so like I, a lot of the policy changes I see these days are like very belated attempts to like try and, um, you know, try and favor labor instead of capital. But they, it seems much too little, much too late. And also, during all of this, asset prices continue to go up. So, like in the pandemic, the richest, you know, 0.01 made billions and billions and billions of dollars. And the worst off did terribly. Um, of course, you know, then there was like the deliberate policy move to sort of appease the working classes with transfer payments and things like that. But is that enough to offset you know, the continued, you know, like chasm 
in society from asset prices, you know, supporting the super wealthy. I don't know. I don't know if it's enough. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure what the solution or the answer is, but definitely was interesting to see during a period of deflation, sort of everybody moved to, to assets, which is like, it's interesting because prior we probably would have seen money hoarding, but now we're seeing, you know, people look towards investments, which is, you know, maybe it is a structural shift. Uh, probably, there probably are elements of longevity where people maybe just are changing there's a shifting consumer behavior. Well, I mean, I don't want to like say Weimar, but I'll say Weimar. Like during Weimar, everyone became a currency speculator. Everyone became a stock market speculator because they felt and realized intuitively that the mark was being debased. Mm -hmm. And so they, they put it in other assets. And of course there was no safe asset you could put it in. Um, and so they, they speculated. So I mean, that's the obvious parallel I'll draw. I don't think we are entering a period of Weimar hyperinflation, to be clear. <laughs> I also think that our critics allege that we are alleging hyperinflation, when really we might just be alleging meaningful inflation, you know, like the likes of which we've seen in the last hundred years in this country. There have been episodes of sustained high inflation. Yeah, that's the I always get the oh, are you inflation mongering? And I'm like, no, I never said hyperinflation. I never said no inflation. I said that it's probably going to be a, a longer term issue. Um, and it's not even it, And in, inflation, the narrative has already shifted. Have you noticed this towards inflation is good? It's not like so initially people said we're not going to get any inflation. Mm -hmm. Those people obviously have been wrong because we're getting inflation, which is not only like okay, they guided us like, oh, yeah, you know, it's the base effects like year over year, you know, like, uh, you know, it's uh, you got to look at May 2020 and like all these, like we're still ahead of, we're running hotter than was expected. So there's that. It's like, okay, we'll see if it's, it's transitory. Give us two quarters. We'll see if it's transitory. Okay, well, the quarters are rolling in. We'll see, you know, I'm, I'm ready. Q4, I'm waiting. We'll see. We'll see if it's transitory. I don't think it is. I don't think it is, but <laughs> um but now the narrative has shifted, right? Like now it's inflation's actually good. And mm -hmm. honestly, like there's something to be said for that. I'm not saying inflation is good, but um the narrative is uh, you know more like okay, well, inflation means that employers have to raise wages and so um and like the various like constellation of government mm -hmm. measures means that um labor is being supported now their wages are 15 20 an hour um oh there's a labor shortage they have to keep hiking you know wages and so that's great and inflation erodes away in theory in some in some context of value of financial assets so inflation is a way of resetting society which is true it is um so the narrative has already begun a shift have you noticed this like towards like yeah we're not going to get inflation to bang. Inflation is good, actually. Yeah, I've noticed that, especially in the jobs, the jobs argument that, oh, well, look, people, people are going to be paid more. Uh, you're going to see uh, wages increase and, you know, wages haven't increased and wages are tied to productivity and blah, 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 blah. And, oh, look, periods of growth are tied to inflation, Ooh, um, which isn't yeah. really true. But it's definitely something I've, I've seen. It's inter it is interesting because it was 
for a while, oh God, it's terrible, but don't worry, we're not going to get it. And now it's, oh, well, it's here, but it's actually a really good thing. It's good. It's yeah. good. Yeah. And so here's, the, here's my issue with what Bitcoiners discourse on inflation is. I know you didn't ask, but here's my <laughs> issue. Bitcoiners have this incredibly naive model of inflation hurting off the worst off in society, which is actually not really necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. The worst in society, no. the the most disempowered are like um, sell their labor for money and they don't have lots of savings. Um, of course, when like... Um, you know, if it, food is a greater component of their income. So if like food prices rise really quickly out of step of their income, then it is a regressive tax. But for the most part, their wage is going to be adjusted, you know, as inflation picks up. It's like, you know, I mean, there might be some frictions, you know, might be out of step with the rate of inflation, but like, you know, they, in theory, will be able to, um, you know, have their, have their like, you know, the value of their labor adjusted. I think it's the middle class that suffers the most from inflation. Um, I agree. They, you know, own, like, first of all, inflation tends to hurt the price of financial assets. It's not guaranteed, like, higher higher inflation, like periods of rising inflation tend to hurt the price of financial assets. Um, so, you know, their pension funds are going to be affected by that, uh, especially if, like, inflation runs ahead of interest rates if they're out of step then pension funds which have to own like treasuries things like that um they're gonna suffer um if they um are on a fixed income like a uh a a salary like if they're a salaried worker that's not going to adjust in real time right like their salary is negotiated once a year um and if you look again, not to talk about Weimar, I know that's like such a cliche. If you look at Weimar, it was this bifurcated effect where you had the very wealthy industrialists, which did unbelievably well, like took over society basically. And then you had the working classes, which for a time did really well too. And it was the middle class, the professional classes, like the um, you know the professors, the teachers, the doctors, which were absolutely crushed because their salaries were not really adjusted in real time. Uh, and so it was the professional, the middle class, basically, uh, that were immiserated by rising inflation. And I actually think that's like more likely, um, but that's not as simple a narrative. So, you know, I, but that's my issue with the way Bitcoiners talk about inflation, basically is the 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 bitcoin critics actually have a point when they say like inflation isn't necessarily that bad for you know the working classes yeah i think i have a similar problem with that sort of story and then also with just the hyperinflation narrative in general it's a symptom of a bigger problem but a lot of people don't really understand that it's not the causal mechanism that leads to the deterioration of institutions it's a result of it So I always tell people, this is what I wrote about the other day. I was like, you know, if we see hyperinflation, you're going to be fighting for your lives, (laughs) trying to, you know, find food and shelter, not going to be worried about your Bitcoins. Uh, I mean, hey, if you want a revolution, like that's the way to go. We're all going to be poor together. And then, you know, you rebuild from the rubble. But just so you know, you know, what you're calling for maybe isn't the best. 
most efficient. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and like in the case of Weimar, I mean, there have been other hyperinflation. There have been other Venezuela. I mean, there have been what fifty documented, like a hyperinflation. Like technically, the definition is a fifty percent month over month rise in consumer prices. Mm-hmm. Um, so Steve Hankey, you know, for all his flaws, Steve Hankey um, yeah. has <laughs> has assembled uh, a good list of hyperinflations. I'm going to give the man some credit. You know, I think, you know, being able good to stuff. like, yeah, no, I, I generally like his work and mm-hmm. people that turn a blind eye to someone's work just because they don't like their stance on bitcoin are insane because most people are against bitcoin mm-hmm. like most people out there in the world so if you can only learn from people that are pro bitcoin you're just going to limit your you know total addressable market of facts and you know learnings to like a tiny pool mm-hmm. that's just insane so you have to tolerate people's like you know, hatred of Bitcoin and also just put that aside <laughs> and, you know, get the good stuff from them. So Hanky, I'm totally going to, you know, benefit from his work, even if he really despises Bitcoin. You can't yeah, wall he, yourself off like that. He does. He does have some good stuff. I'll give him that. But um, to to wrap up, I, I, I went to Twitter, you know, to ask some some questions. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, to ask we, the people what they want to hear. You know, what do the oh, people want? Okay, Somebody uh, asked, uh, "Who's more handsome, you or Naraj?" That was a that was a question that actually came from from within my organization. So, do you have any comment? Because Lily um, on the last on the first episode said that the two most eligible bachelors on crypto Twitter. Well, you'll have to listen to that to hear. You can't her trick me into listening to answer. that episode. Is that what she said, me Naraj? Um, I don't know. I suddenly can't remember. But uh, you don't. N- neither you nor her nor Crypto Twitter know if we're actually bachelors or not. To be clear, this is true. Nobody, nobody does know. But it's you know speculation. Yeah, that's yeah. It goes with the territory, I suppose. It it does. Um, Naraj actually had a question. Let's know more about your daily affirmations beliefs on aquafarians and energetic alignment with mer people there's no such thing thing as a coincidence coincidence, yeah there's no such thing as coincidence the fact that you're hearing this message means that you're energetically aligned with me and my message which is that inflation is not transitory (laughs) how many times have you watched that video (laughs) hundreds hundreds Yeah. yeah i'm obsessed i downloaded the app Grandmaster, it's like some Grandmaster app, I think. Um, so yeah, I have this guy's app now. He's an it, app. It's the only reason I use TikTok is to watch his like his videos, which are just so compelling. <laughs> <laughs> Very inspirational. Most oh my god, people are wild. These are some of these questions. Are you have insane fans. Uncouth. Allison. Oh my goodness, you this is a fan. Fans. This is a family show. My fans are like. For the most part, normal. Well, they're not normal at all. But your fans are like they can be unhinged. Yeah, these questions are extremely unhinged. People see there is the bachelor Toxic. question. People want to know. Um, what What are the hit me with some of the questions? I'm, I can't guarantee. You somebody said, "Why are you still single?" I don't even know if I can't even I acknowledge that question. I'm not necessarily even single. Somebody said. Win Lambo. <laughs> I would never drive a Lamborghini. I'm also not going to tell you what I drive because you guys will make fun of me. Yeah, they'll find you. 
Um, somebody asked when the boy band's getting back together. A friend, I actually texted a good friend of mine, and he texted me a picture of Nick Carter, like the musician, literally last night. I kid you not. So he was like, oh, hi, Nick. I'm hanging out with the real Nick Carter, and he sent me a picture That's with funny. Nick Carter, the artist. And I was like, what What makes him the real Nick Carter? And like, I'm also, I'm also real, okay? <laughs> How much of your wardrobe is from Ralph Lauren? I like Ralph Lauren. It's great. It is, it's a good... It's a good, so many Backstreet Boy questions. Another uncouth question. Um, are somebody asking a question, I think in German, I don't know what that says. Are you, uh, how much do you deadlift? Um, I don't address that. Yeah. It's not an impressive amount. <laughs> <laughs> but the important thing is that you do le- deadlift, which, you know, Nassim Taleb does not, to be clear. Exactly. You're already we also better. have to get you in the gym. Yeah. Like, I saw that you went yesterday. I did. Did you? What did you do? Did you just, just run did... on the elliptical? I don't go on the elliptical. Okay, good. Anymore. Good. I go on the treadmill on the bike machine. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I did cardio, but I need I need to lift or something. Yeah, I, we, you me. just need to. Look how strong I am. Oh, yeah. Ooh. Yeah, Sad. no, we need to. Pathetic. But, like, you have to, you know, you got to start with, like, a body or something. Like, you Yeah, know. I know. Because so I can't, I can barely lift a pound. You should go with Anthony. Well, I don't know if she lives in D.C. anymore, but she's very strong. Yeah, she yeah she said ask a real expert, so maybe. Yeah, no, she is genuinely an expert on like powerlifting. That's funny. Yeah, so I don't. Uh, yeah, nobody really had any. I don't know if these are any of these are substantial. Somebody asked, when next photo shoot? I've done enough. I've done enough photo shoots like to last me a lifetime. Now. I just I hated the old ones, including the one that you have on the mug. It's a good mug. It's a great. It's so stupid. I limited can't edition. You well, made these. <laughs> well, I instructed my merch person to make them. It, still, it was. <laughs> but yes, it's. You'll uh, never live It's that very down. embarrassing. Yeah, I can't believe I did that. Somebody asked if you pick up girls with the. I had the president of El Salvador in my space once, but as we've already talked about, you can't really, can't really flex that anymore. Um, yeah, I can't talk about it, and also I don't think uh, I think I don't think most girls are very impressed. I'm not sure they know who the president of El Salvador is. Yeah, no, I don't think so. And I guess maybe the only subs- like the only question with substance is what is the future of cryptocurrency? Ooh, um, it, it involves more banks. It involves more banks, and uh, you know you're just gonna have to get comfortable with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, the future is, uh, it, it gets less exciting and more, uh, more institutionalized, more credible, um, uh, more actually useful, um, and, uh, less, less like, uh, you know, like Ponzi nonsense. Uh, so I'm, frankly, I'm looking forward to that future. Yeah. So you're not too, uh, too keen on all of the altcoins. We have a baby doge, I think Elon Musk tweeted about baby doge. Duh. I mean, I just don't have like I don't have like an opinion on yeah. really on you know altcoins generally. Like we're trying to like achieve something genuinely significant, like politically important here. So like we're at war with like the establishment. Like this is going to get much more difficult, much worse. We're trying to like effectively create a new political movement here. Mm-hmm. People have started to realize that. Um, to spend your time being distracted by altcoins is like to completely miss the point. Mm-hmm. It's a complete distraction. Like we're trying to accomplish something enormously consequential here. 
others are just trying to like extract value from retail investors. But so that's fine, but just don't like try and distract from the core message. Don't, you know, like Bitcoin exists for a reason. It has a purpose. Um, you know, endless meritless clones of Dogecoin built on the Binance smart chain are completely irrelevant, completely irrelevant. Um, and so that has always been my stance. It's not that I'm like against altcoins. I just, they're completely irrelevant to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm very similar sentiment on that. So, I don't know. I've never really looked to crypto markets to like, I don't know, extract, cap- extract capital in that way. I make like one trade a year, you know. <laughs> I like, make none. So <laughs> people think that everyone on CT is the same. They're all like degen traders, like chasing the hot ball of money on DeFi or whatever. It's like what I actually do in my day job is fund startups, like you know, real businesses, not like random token nonsense. You know, businesses building financial infrastructure so this stuff can work. Like, you'll forgive me if I sound like a little bit indignant, but people think that just because we're in like the crypto space, we're all like doing the same thing. That couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, that's that's something I've realized too. People always asking me for like trades and like coin picks and I'm like, I don't do any of that stuff. Yeah, I've <laughs> so. literally never had an account on Binance, never. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, I just like, it's not that I'm like opposed to this and I'm not, not going to sell, you know, like can't trade, like trading is immoral or whatever. It's just, I am not participating in it. And you know, I happen to be here and happen to be aligned with all these other people, but like there's important work to be done. Like core economic theories need to be sketched out like by people like you that are actually qualified to talk about it. (laughs) Like real businesses need to be built here. You know, (laughs) this is an industry that needs to like, we need to keep the flame alive. Uh, and so some of us have to have a more long-term focus and like, I can guarantee you, I'm going to be working on this in 10 years. Um, I can't guarantee you that like, you know, most of my followers that are asking me for tips on the next altcoin are going to be doing that in 10 years. I don't think that the altcoin casino is even going to exist in five years. Yeah. Two years even. Last question. Speaking of timelines, do you have sort of, uh, an optimal timeline for like when, I don't know. For me personally, when El Salvador did what it did, I was very surprised because I thought yep. the first country to uh, even think about that would, would come in the next 10 years at least. So I was wrong and and surprised. But do you have a, a timeline for when you think this stuff is going to start becoming more mainstream, for lack of better words? It has been. I mean, we went from mm-hmm. zero people use Bitcoin to 100 million in a decade. That's pretty fast. Um, I mean, mainstream in, uh, sorry, I should have specified, in like monetary regimes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, probably four nation states now have a, f- like a formal relationship with Bitcoin. They're not the ones you want, but uh, they're the ones we got. Um, and then, you know, El Salvador is the most salubrious of those. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I believe that, um, well, a number of central banks already have indirect exposure to Bitcoin through, like, equities they own and, and you know, also through like sovereign wealth funds, uh, making investments in, you know, venture funds and like crypto businesses and things like that. Um, but like in terms of like adding Bitcoin to your FX reserves explicitly, you know, that's kind of the next, that's what I expected. I think it'll happen the next five years. We'll see a couple dozen central banks do it. 
uh, especially as the dollar, you know, it looks to be imperiled. Um, and, uh, you know, if you listen to Bukele, what does he always talk about? You have to listen, you have to read between the lines with him. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about the dollar being issued to serve Americans, right? Transfer payments, you know, like print tons and tons of dollars, use it to provide bailouts to Americans, um, you know, fund American lifestyles with the issuance of the dollar. But of course, most dollars are held overseas. Everybody bears the brunt of inflation uh, in the dollar. Uh, Salvadorians do, right? Like a dollarized country. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's part of his motivation is um, just ridding himself of that uh, dependency. Um, and I think he's, uh, you know, like I think anybody that utilizes the dollar that isn't receiving uh, any income from the U.S. government, uh, it also feels this as well, which is like, well, there's like clearly a hierarchical system and we're at the bottom of the heap here. We bear the cost of inflation, not the benefits of it. So it's a basically redistribution of wealth. Uh, and so I think various nation states that own dollar assets, own treasuries, they're going to think that they're going to read Lynn Alden's piece and be like, okay, well, like, look what happened in the 40s to anybody that owned treasuries. Uh, look what happens when you pull that debt to GDP ratio down. People that own dollars and dollar assets get crushed. They get totally crushed. So, yeah, I think Bitcoin's an alternative. Gold's another alternative. Central banks are stacking on gold right now. China is clearly divesting themselves of dollar assets and, well, dollars themselves, treasuries, and they're buying up other hard assets. Mm-hmm. Russia is, you know, changing the composition of their reserves, too. So, like, a lot of these central banks are looking ahead, and they're, they're you know... It's not like the dollar is going to be eliminated as a global reserve or anything like that, but is its influence going to be less 10 years from now? For sure. Oh, yeah. And it already is. I mean, it already hit its 25-year low as a share of uh, foreign reserve banks. So There we go. And Yeah, I think if you're a central bank, you're thinking about all your options right now. Bitcoin is like a very outside option. It's like a crazy option, but it won't be as crazy in like, you know, five years' time. Yeah. It's a sensible timeline. Very, very good discussion. Lots of lots of broad topics were covered. We were pretty sensible. You can't go yet because when I stop this, we have to wait for it to upload. But um, oh yeah, thanks well, we, for coming. Yes, my my pleasure, Allison. This is great. This is great conversation. I'll have to have you on when I have a better mic. <laughs> yeah, for the audience, I did instruct Allison to improve her podcasting setup, but she didn't listen to me. He did try, but it'll it's coming. Don't worry. And uh, where can they find you? They haven't found you already. On Twitter. Twitter. I also have a personal website. All my stuff is on there. NickCarter.info. NickCarter.info and Nick two underscores Carter on Twitter. That's you anywhere else? You on TikTok? Uh, um, I don't really post on there. Maybe I should. Do you? Are you posting like economics related TikToks? No, I think I I wouldn't do good at that. You might be surprised. Mm. <laughs> Well, no TikTok yet, but definitely Twitter, your website. Do you have you have anything else? You have a YouTube. Yeah, I'm a YouTuber now. Um, mm-hmm. I Yeah, I did two videos. People liked them. Um, it was kind of surprised me. I just monologued into the camera for like 25 minutes for one of them. Yeah, they're pretty good. Um, but, uh, I guess that's all it takes to be a YouTuber. Yeah, literally. You just have yeah. to talk. 
Well, make sure to follow Nick on all of those platforms. Any final words for the, for the crowd? Just uh, remember to manifest and uh, affirm. Uh, and uh, you know, that's how good things happen. There's no such thing as a coincidence. That's true. Thank you again. 